I encourage you to open your Bibles up to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3. But you can open those up to page 1027. And if it's been a long time since you have looked at the Bible, it might be helpful for you to know that the large numbers are what we call chapter divisions. The small numbers are verse divisions. And they are simply there to help us navigate God's Word. They were not originally there, a part of it, but they were added later for us to help us be able to find things. So you're looking at, if you're a Pew Bible, page 1027. If you brought your own Bible, it's going to be different, but uh, we'll be walking through verses 8 to 13 this morning. Before we do that, would you join me asking the Lord's help as we come to him, as we come to his word. Father, this, this is indeed your word. And your word is eternal and it is good. And we pray that today we will, through it, that we will know you, that we will know your way for us, that we will see and rejoice in your work in Christ more clearly for us and what you call us to be, that we may honor you, our God. In Christ's name, amen. Yesterday afternoon, it was beautiful. The rain had stopped finally yesterday and... uh, I was able to take a, a good long walk. There is around our area, we're out in the country, and so taking a walk means like taking your life into your own hands as you're walking along the side of the road. Uh, but there is a, a short circuit that's a little, it's like just under two miles. There's a medium circuit that's about two and a quarter miles, and then there's a long circuit, which is three and a half miles. And uh, I took the long circuit, and as I was walking through this, this windy part, I was looking at a tree, a tree that I've seen before, uh, had grown up quite, quite large now, but it has grown in a, a shape that is not normal, what you would expect. Rather than growing up straight and tall, as trees normally do, this one, though it was a good size, it was a fairly large tree, it had grown in almost a perfect arch. And it, what you could tell is that it had, as it had grown, there was a, another tree or something that had fallen on top of it early on. And as it grew, it grew taller, it grew stronger, but it, that arch just became more and more pronounced over time. Until now that whatever was holding onto it, whatever was lying on top of it, isn't there anymore. It's fallen down completely. But the tree itself still has that that arch to it. We might say it has that deformity to it. It is not meant to be shaped like this, and yet it was. External forces can certainly shape us in ways that we don't expect. They can certainly shape churches the way we may not expect. But God is intending this not only external forces, but he intends that there will be internal forces that help structure us as a church. As elders, we are working through a book together this year, and one of the, the book that we are working through the first part of this year, uh, it uses this image of a trellis and a vine. Some of you who garden or use trellises in your home, you, you know very well the purpose of a trellis is not just to look beautiful, although some of them really do, but it's meant to be a structure upon which a vine is able to grow and help. With, that without the trellis, without that support structure, the vine just what? It just lays on the ground, it, it languishes, it's not able to grow to its full strength. It's weak. 
But with that trellis, with that structure, the vine is able to flourish. It is able to become fruitful and beautiful. As, it, as the vine or whatever fruit goes, grows up over top of it, covering it. Structures as well as vine. Structures as well as life. We need both. And as we come to 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is intending to remind Timothy, who is in many ways acting as the pastor of this church in Ephesus, And he's writing this public letter to him, an open letter, a letter that is meant to be read and understood by the church where Timothy is serving. And if you'll just turn the page and look at verse 14 to 16, we look at these uh, these verses weeks ago. But Paul tells Timothy, and he tells the church why he's writing everything he writes. And he says in verse 14, These things I write to you, though I'm hoping to come to you shortly, I'm writing to you these things, So that if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. The pillar and the structure, the pillar and the buttress, the support. The church is like that that trellis and the vine. There is lots of life and vitality and growth, but where there is no structure and there is no trellis, the... The vine fails. It falters. And, and Paul conveys this beautiful picture to Timothy, to us, that the church, and that the church is massively important. He calls it the pillar and ground of the truth. Elsewhere, he will describe it as the means by which God is showing off his glory to the world. By it, the gospel of Jesus is made visible. We know this. Christ himself tells us, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. As we love one another as Christ has called us to, in the way that he calls us to, we show off, we display his gospel love. This is the message of, in part of Ephesians chapter 3. The church is not just a, a side item in the Christian life. But it is massively important. The, the local church is important for you. It is for me. It is massively important. And so therefore what God says about local churches matters supremely because the gospel and the truth and the glory of God are all at stake. And churches organize themselves differently. Sometimes it is merely according to tradition, right? This is the way we have always done it. We see, we can watch and and read through church history and find how churches began over time to add layers of authority, not just within church, but then over churches, authority outside of churches. And this is what ultimately we see happened in the Roman Catholic Church, where layers of authority, layers of, uh, of tradition, layers of a hierarchy, and popes, and bishops, and cardinals, and priests, and, 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 and the works, and how this works itself out. More than that, in our day, for, non, for, for churches like us, who are not bound by a denomination like the Roman Catholic Church, often what we model ourselves after, 
what churches like them, us model ourselves after, is what we see in the business world or in the culture around us. And so we begin to have boards, boards of elders, boards of deacons, boards of directors, boards of trustees, groups and committees that have isolated authority within the church. Even missions agencies are increasingly encouraging missionaries to not, uh, as they go and they seek to plant churches, to just forget, there is no, they'll claim that there is no church structure there in the New Testament or in the scriptures that we need to model as a church. What you really just need to do is whatever country or whatever culture you're going into, find some pattern that you can work with and just adopt it. What I'm arguing for this morning is that the scriptures are our guide. And that the scriptures do indeed give us a structure, a trellis upon which we are to order ourselves so that we might grow. And we have looked at the last few weeks, we have thought through Paul's teaching on what an elder is and is to be. And this week we want to begin looking at what a deacon is. And we see that there are these two offices that is two, two distinct offices within a church. If verse 1 in chapter 3, you can see Paul says, this is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good thing. And as we looked at weeks ago, the New Testament has three different words to describe the office of a pastor slash elder. And it is bishop and elder and pastor all used interchangeably to describe one office. And so here in verses 1 to 7, he describes this this work and this position, the, the character that is required for elders, for pastors. But then in verse 8, he says, likewise deacons. Likewise deacons. And these are the only two offices that he, that he gives. Pastors, elders, deacons. These, these are the only two. If you were to look and flip over to the book of Philippians where Paul is writing to the church of Philippi, there you will find that he he begins his letter writing, he says, to the saints who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Again, two offices. There is not a, a number of offices that you can expect of a church. There are these two and these two only. The scriptures are our blueprint, they are our guide. Not tradition, not business, or government, or culture. But the pattern that we see here in scripture. And it begs the question, we get to verse 8. Likewise, deacons. And it, it begs the question, what are deacons, right? What, what is a deacon? And simply put, a, a deacon is a servant. A deacon is a servant. That word for deacon, diakonos, is one of the primary words in the New Testament for a servant. It is used both as a noun and as a verb. And so you'll have places where you will read about a servant who serves, or you might say a deacon who who deacons. And this word group is used to describe lots and lots of different kinds of people. It's used to describe people who serve in general. So you see in verse Corinthians 16, 15, where an entire household of a man is known to have devoted themselves to the service of the people of their local church. They are deacons, servants. In Romans 13, Paul 
calls the Roman government the servants or the deacons of God. More than that, we find it, Paul refers to himself and to other church leaders as servants or ministers, but it's that word deacon. 1 Corinthians 3, 5, what is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants, only deacons. Deacons of Christ, deacons of the word, deacons of the gospel, deacons of God's people. Indeed, in Mark 10, 43, Christ himself says, whoever would be great among you must be your deacon, must be your servant. And this fits because we find two verses later that Christ is the chief deacon, is he not? And that's exactly what he says in Mark 10, 45. Christ says, I have come not to deacon, but to deacon. Not to be deaconed, but to deacon myself. Not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. This is what Christ does. He, He takes the form of a servant. Though he is God, equal with God, one with the Father. Though he has all the rights to all the glory in the world. He, Philippians chapter 2, he humbles himself taking the form of a servant and becoming obedient even to the point of death. And isn't this what Jesus shows us? In John John 13, when Christ visibly takes on this role of a deacon, of a servant, and kneels to wash his disciples' feet, takes the place of the lowest possible servant in the household to wash the feet of his deacons, to the point they are offended by that, that he, Christ, the one they are serving, the one that they have come to follow, he would do this. Brothers and sisters, if we are to follow Christ, we must serve. More than this, Friend, if you would follow after this Jesus, you must be first served by this Jesus. You cannot follow Christ if he is not first your servant. If he has not first washed you of your sin. If you have not repented by, and come to him by faith, trusting only in him, he will not serve you by cleansing you from your sin. If you were to follow after this Jesus, this one, though being God has come to serve sinners like you and I, you must first be served by him. You must be washed of your sin and cleansed. You must be forgiven by God. And Jesus gives us this picture of what a servant is. And on one level, every follower of Jesus is a servant, is a deacon. It's what you and I are called to be. If we claim to be a follower of Christ, that is, if you are at this moment, if you were to stand before God and your only hope before him is not that you are a good person, is not that you are going to be a better person, it is not that uh, you have been related to people in the past who are good or religious Christians, but that your only hope is Christ and Christ alone, Christ and what he has accomplished for you. If your hope is in Jesus, then part of your fundamental identity is that you are a servant of Christ Jesus. But what Paul is describing in this passage is not the role that all of us are to partake of, all of us are to follow in. 
he is describing a particular office within the church. He is describing a particular office. And just as we see in verses 1 to 7, where the qualifications for this office Paul gives, and he doesn't list out all the competencies that are necessary. He doesn't tell you, hey, this guy's got to be really good at finances. He needs to be a business leader. He needs to have all of these things going on in his life. He needs to show himself that he is capable of great things. Nothing like that. When we find the most essential characteristics of those who are to be servants in a church that is set aside by a church to serve in particular ways, the most important things about them, about any of us, is their character. Because one of the chief ways that deacons serve along with elders is not merely in what they do, but it's in how they model Christ. It's how they live out faithful service to Jesus. So Paul begins to describe this role of deacon. And it's really remarkable that this role's title is deacon or servant. In the world in which Paul lived, there would have been fewer positions in his world that were less respectable, less desirable, less wanted than that of servant. They lived with servants. They saw servants. Servants did not own themselves. They did not own their lives, their time. They came as they were told. They went as they were told. They did as they were told. But but amongst those who confess and follow after Jesus... Servants is not a place of of lowness. It is a place of great significance, of great importance to the body of believers. And so we ask the question, what kind of people are these deacons to be? We find in verse 8, this fundamental identity. Likewise, deacons must be reverent. That is, they must be worthy of respect. Other translations might have dignified The idea is that whether these men are at work or at home or at church, wherever their lives are observable by others, their conduct is honorable. If above reproach is the the overriding qualification, the overriding quality expected for pastors, elders, so worthy of respect is that fundamental quality that is expected for deacons. That these are individuals whose lives evoked, evoke and elicit a response of respect for the way that they serve, for the way that they live their lives out. And this gets played out, this gets unpacked in a number of different ways. These are individuals who are worthy of respect in their speech. We see this. They are not double-tongued. That is, they are sincere men. They are honest individuals. They are not hypocrites. They do not use their words to hurt or deceive others. They are, these deacons are the kind of people that you can trust. They have a reputation for keeping their word. They follow through on what they say. They're willing to speak the truth, but they they do it in love. They speak honestly. Not saying one thing to one group of people, another thing to another group of people. 
but that their yes is yes and their no is no. Friend, is your speech like this? This is not just true of deacons. We see in verse 11 that this is extended to another category within deacons. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful, or trustworthy in all things. Now the words here, likewise, their their wives, that, that word wives can be translated not as wives, but as women and uh, That word there is not there in the Greek. So it might simply be translated, likewise, women must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. So whether this is speaking of deacons' wives or is speaking of other women who serve in a significant capacity within the church, what is clear is that women are also actively serving in the church and that they too, when they hold and they're serving in this capacity, they too must be temperate, they too must be respectable in their speech. The ministry of a deacon has the potential to put you in a difficult situation where you may be serving someone, you may learn and see things that require you to be honest, to be trustworthy, not slander people behind their back. So you must not be double-tongued, not a hypocrite, must be honest. More than this, you, we need men and individuals who are worthy of respect in their self-control and self-denial. We see this again in verse 8. Not given to much wine. Not greedy for money. These are individuals who are not controlled. Not motivated ultimately by what they will get. They're not motivated or controlled by any outside substance. That They are compelled by their desire to please Christ. They are compelled to serve others out of love. This gives the impression that not given to much wine, not greedy for money, it gives the impression that these are people who steward their resources well. They put the kingdom of God before themselves, honoring the Lord with their giving, showing generosity with others in need. This is getting awfully close to tax season. We're honest with what we are reporting, honest with our finances. Honest with whatever resources God has given us. These are people who, with their lives, with their lips, honor the Lord. More than this, deacons are to be worthy of respect in their grasp of God's word. Verse 9. They are holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. It is Paul isn't here requiring this mystery of the faith. He's speaking of the basic truths of, of God's word, of the plan of redemption, the gospel as it is full and free. He's not requiring a, a, a high level of degree of Bible knowledge. He's not requiring a, uh, an academic degree, uh, an academic degree. What he is saying is that deacons need to have a clear and firm grasp of the claims of scripture. They need to be able to explain the gospel to others. They need to be able to believe these truths for themselves. You know what this tells us about deacons is that deacons are not simply handymen. They're not merely the handymen of the church. Because you you don't care what your handymen know, right? As long as they know how to get the job done, it doesn't matter what else they may know. But deacons are more than that. More than, more than just handymen, they are to be 
actively leading. They are to be there to know the word. To grow in their knowledge and understanding of it. More than this, in verse 10, we see that these are to have been proven worthy of respect. He says, but let these also first be tested. That is, let these deacons also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. And we're not sure exactly what Paul has in mind when he is saying, let them be tested. I don't know if he's got some kind of gauntlet in mind. I'm sure some of our deacons wouldn't mind having a gauntlet that they could do. Uh, might make deacon selection a lot more interesting if we had a gauntlet uh, for them to, to work through. But what it is clear is that the, the testing that he means and requires is that we are able to observe these men, the, observe these individuals as they are serving before they ever become deacons. Why? Why is it important for a deacon to be tested, to be served? And just as elders were not to be new Christians, so deacons need to be able, to, they, they need to have shown themselves worthy of respect. And they can only do that over a period of time. The church needs to be able to trust that these men are able to be sent into difficult situations. And that the church is able to trust them there. That these individuals who are put in a situation where they are caught between a rock and a hard place, caught between two, two factions within the church, that they serve in a way that honors the Lord. And trust requires time to observe someone's faithfulness in this regard. More than this, not just at church, They are to be seen worthy of respect at home. Look with me at verse 12. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. There that that same terminology we saw just a few weeks ago, the husband of one wife. But as they, like elders, they are to be one woman kind of men. Not wandering eye, not flirtatious, not worrying that someone's going to pick up their phone and check their messages or check their history. Brothers and sisters, are you a one woman kind of man, men? Ladies, are you a one man kind of woman? Are you developing some kind of relationship with someone, those of you who are married, some kind of relationship with someone outside of of your husband or wife at work, developing some intimacy, some, some connections there, something that ought to be reserved for you and your husband, you and your wife. Are he speaking here directly to deacons? This is to be for all of us to hear, all of us to receive, all of us to be warned by. More than this, he describes not just one women kind of people, not just faithful in the relationships to their spouse, but he describes as ruling their children in their own house as well. 
And we saw just two weeks ago when we looked at the first passage, or the, the passage prior to this, that when Paul describes ruling their house as well, he does not mean the kind of rule that dominates, the kind of rule that demands respects, that demands that, what, that they be given honor. This is the kind of rule, rather, that elicits and evokes it. In fact, as he's describing what elders are called to do, and, and the rule that they are to have over their own home, he gives us and tells us what this looks. So look at verse 4 of chapter 3. Describing a work of an elder, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence, that is, they respect him. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, that's that same word, rule, how will he, and what does it mean to rule? How will he rule, or he says, take care of the church of God? And we notice how that word there for take care, the only other place in the New Testament we find that word is in the way that the Good Samaritan takes care of the Jew that he finds lying helpless, bruised, broken in the road. That's what it looks like, brothers, for us to rule our house as well. That's costly. That's painful. That is the role of a servant. Brothers, are you ruling your homes well in this way? Worthy of respect at home. A man who demands to be served in his own home is not worthy to be be a servant in the household of God. Do you notice what's not there in any of those things? He doesn't mention someone's success in business. He doesn't mention how long they've been at the church. He doesn't mention their experience that they might have handling different problems. He doesn't mention that the guy who's working in finance obviously needs to be the guy who's handling the money of the church. He doesn't mention someone's wealth or importance in the world. More important than the size of your paycheck or the significance of your job title or even the style of car you may drive, more important than any of those things is the quality of character we have. This is what we are looking for. This is what we need as a church and our deacons and our elders, and all who serve. This is what we ought to aspire for. And in verse 13, he gives us the reward, the deacon's reward. Elsewhere in the Bible, the Lord will speak of eternal rewards that are given for those who serve others in his name. Christ says merely giving a cup of cold water to to brothers and sisters in Christ, Christ recognizes that, he honors that, rewards that, how much more then does he reward those who serve? But Paul mentions here two kinds of reward that deacons who serve well can expect in this life. First, he says, for those who have served well as deacons obtain obtain for themselves a good standing. That is not only... So deacons, as to be a deacon, they must be individuals who are worthy of respect. So also, when deacons serve well, 
they gain a good standing. That is, they, they gain increased respect and honor in the church. Here we see the, the cross shape of Christianity made absolutely clear. That the ones that the church esteems are those who serve most well, most sacrificially, most faithfully. The ones who empty themselves of glory and get down on their knees to reach the back of the toilets. The ones who spend that time to go make a call, to invest not just with time, but their emotional energy, their mental energy, to make a visit. Despite the fact that it's exhausting, despite the fact that they don't know where it's going to lead, what it's going to require of them, I'm going to pick someone up from church and, and bring them. Because that, they're living out what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. Faithful deacons who serve well and serve faithfully gain immense standing and respect in the church. I've grown up in churches. And I'll, there are some individuals who whatever church I've been in, have served so faithfully, so quietly, so willingly, and so well, that they, sometimes even more than the pastors, they are honored far greater. That is what we ought to aspire to, to serve well. Secondly, a deacon who serves well, they are rewarded, we are told, with great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Great boldness. Great assurance, that word might be translated. That is, as we, as we serve one another, one of the things that we learn is not, is not just that we may like serving, but as we serve one another, and as we love one another sacrificially, we see the Lord working through us, and it gives us assurance that God is with us, that, God, that we belong to him. And it gives us boldness to speak about him to others. I think the greatest example of a deacon who fits these qualities, who models these qualities well, and who showcases what it looks like to be rewarded in this way, one who is given a great standing and one who shows great boldness and assurance in the faith, I can't think of a greater person to look at than that of Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7. You can turn your Bibles there if you are able to Acts chapter 6 and 7. It is a remarkable passage where we see Stephen, who is one of the first deacons who was called. We read about him along with several others earlier. And deacon and, uh, sorry, in Stephen in Acts 6, he is chosen to be a deacon. He serves well. And then, by his service, he is accused. We are told in verse 8 that Stephen, full of faith and power, he does great wonders and signs among the people. He is serving well. Clearly, the Lord is with him in a, in a special way. And the response of the world to him is that they, they take him. There arose, we see in verse 9, then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen. There's Cyrenians and Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. 
Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon Stephen, seized him, and brought him to the council. And they also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. And then in chapter 7, Stephen goes on to deliver one of the longest messages in the entire book of Acts. And as he he preaches, he unpacks the gospel, the plan of God, from Genesis all the way to Christ, cross and resurrection. And it's fascinating. As he ends his message and points people to the Lord, points people to faith in Christ, we read in verse 54, that those leaders, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And they gnashed at him with their teeth, which is a a way of saying that they were extremely angry with him. But he, being full of the Spirit, Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord and they cast him out of the city and stoned him and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You know, the first martyr was not an apostle. was not an elder. The first martyr was a deacon. A deacon who by his faithful service had gained increased standing and boldness before the church and the world. He became a danger by his service and his word. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need such dangerous deacons today. We need servants whose faithful and bold service to Christ makes them dangerous to the world. Churches fail for lack of servants. We, we falter for apathy and laziness. Now, Satan is fine. The world is fine with Christians who are so busy for themselves but are lazy toward God and his people. What you and I need is to become faithful servants who by our faithful service are given assured standing, are given standing and boldness before God in the world. In his excellent book on deacons, Matt Smethurst records how it was deacons who were the ones in the Netherlands who initially made Nazi Germany back down. He records the event that in 1940, Nazi Germany uh, invaded the Netherlands Ultimately, very quickly, the Netherlands falls to the Germans. 
And anyone who opposed the Nazis were politically oppressed, were treated harshly. In response to this going on, not only within the church but outside the church, it was the deacons of the churches who rose up to care for these people, supplying food, secreting people away, giving them shelter, providing refuge. Over time, the Nazis began to realize what was going on, and they decreed that the office of deacons in all the churches ought to be eliminated. In 1941, as pressure began to mount against the churches to eliminate deacons, the Dutch Christians responded saying, whoever touches the diaconate interferes with what Christ has ordained as the task of the church. Whoever lays hands on the deacons lays hands on worship. The defiance of these believers, in defiance, uh, the defiance of these believers to the Nazis out of faithfulness to Christ, is what forced the Germans to back down. And the result of all of that was that the, that the gospel and the glory of God was seen all the more brightly. And you can trace throughout church history that wherever deacons have served powerfully, the witness and the strength of the churches has increased, that the gospel has gone forward powerfully. Brothers and sisters in Christ, pray for the deacons of this church. Pray that they will serve sacrificially, faithfully. Pray for one another that we would all serve like this. That we would follow in the steps of Christ who serves us. Deacons, Brothers, we need you to serve faithfully. To lead us by your example to see Christ who came not to be served. Who came not to serve when it was convenient, when it was economical. He came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Let us follow after our chief deacon. Let us follow hard after Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you know the selfishness of our own hearts. You know that what often drives us is not your glory, it is not love for your people. We are calculating, even as we serve others, what will this cost me? What will I have to give up? Oh God, forgive us for being so miserly in our service. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would teach us what generous service looks like. I pray that you would help us by your Spirit to see the generous service that you have already shown us through your Son in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that whether we serve as a deacon or not will be meaningless. 
I pray that you will teach us to serve. That we may glorify your name, O God. I pray this in the name of our Savior, our suffering servant, Christ Jesus. Amen.